welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart podcast, keeping you healthy and pain-free. I am your host, Karen Litzy, and this is podcast number 156. And over the past month, uh, we've had a, a number of different podcasts that were centering on pain, theories behind pain, treating patients with pain. And today, I'm really excited because now we're going to talk about how to engage with practitioners about pain. How can we spread the word of the biopsychosocial model of care? How can we get pain education to be standard amongst our peers, amongst physical therapists, physicians, osteopaths, chiropractors, trainers, athletic trainers? So uh, in, in today's episode, we're going to talk about how to create that engagement. How can we push this process further? And I'm thrilled to be, uh, to be interviewing today Allison Sim. Allison qualified as an osteopath in 2001. She is currently undertaking a master's of pain management, and we'll talk about that later in the program, through the Sydney University Medical School and Royal North Shore Pain Management Research Institute. She has lectured at Australian Catholic University, Victoria University, and RMIT in a variety of science and clinical subjects. She has also worked as part of the teaching team at Deakin University Medical School and is currently working in clinical practice in a multidisciplinary clinic in Melbourne, Australia. She has been running seminars on the topic of pain science and how to clinically apply it for about 12 months now and also on blogs and various pain topics. And Lucky for the United States, Allison and her family are moving to the U.S. to Portland, Oregon in a couple of weeks. And I also want to say that she will be one of the featured lecturers at the San Diego Pain Summit in 2016. So if you want to learn more about the San Diego Pain Summit, I think you go to sandiegopainsummit.com and she's going to be one of the featured speakers. So, and, and I met Allison at the San Diego Pain Summit this past February. So Allison, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast and, and welcome all the way from Australia. Thanks, Karen. It's um, very exciting to be chatting with you today. And now, what? just so that people know, you have a really great blog. So can you tell everyone what your blog is so if people want to go and, and learn more about what you're writing? Oh, thanks, Karen. Um, yes, my website is beyondmechanicalpain.com and so there's a little bit of a blog on there. I've been doing it for about probably 10 months now and I try and regularly put something together on, on various topics um, around the topic of pain. So yes, they can go and have a look there. Yeah, yeah, it's, a, it's, it's really great. So I definitely encourage you to go to beyondmechanicalpain.com. And, and just so you know, throughout this interview, um, Allison's going to talk about a lot of different resources. And for those of you who get my newsletter, all of those resources are going to be in the newsletter. If you're not part of the newsletter, you can go to karenlitzy.com and sign up for that. Um, so it'll be in the newsletter and it'll also be, um, on the healthy, wealthy and smart Facebook page. So don't worry about trying to like, write everything down because we will uh, provide you with all of the links to the resources we talk about. Okay, so Allison, let's just get right in it here. So um, how do we create engagement with practitioners to increase their understanding of pain? Um, in, in Australia, I'm sure it seems you like you guys are a little bit ahead of the curve compared to the United States as far as 
as pain research and, and understanding of pain is concerned. So how can we increase uh, pract practitioner engagement? That's um that's a really good good question, Karen. And you're right. There is um there's a lot of action in Australia. There's uh, lots of exciting things happening uh, down in Adelaide, where um, Laura Mosley and, and David Butler are based, and uh, and out of Sydney. There's there's a lot of um, research and uh, and movement in pain science coming out of Sydney University and other research institutes there. Um, and uh, so as to how, how to engage therapists, I think um, it can become really easy when you, when you are a little bit pain-centric and you talked about the idea that you've had a lot of people on in the last month talking about pain and um, I know you have an interest in it and, um, and when we get a bit pain-centric like that and we're reading a lot of blogs or listening to those sorts of podcasts, it's quite easy to assume that... Um, that everyone else is on board with these approaches. And, um, and I know some of the forums that I'm in, they essentially become echo chambers. So, um, you know, we'll, we'll talk about the way that the, the biopsychosocial approach is the way forward and everyone tends to agree and there's not a lot of argument or discussion about these things. Um, so it can become, um, it can put a, a little bit of a false sense of, um, of an understanding of where we're at. And I think uh, it doesn't take much to step outside that and, and look at the bigger picture and look at across the professions and see where there's a lot of improvement that needs to, uh, to happen to get practitioners on board with a, a better understanding of pain science. Yeah, and, and just so people know, uh, if you can kind of, I realise I just sort of threw out biopsychosocial, model of care, but there's a biopsychosocial and there's a biomedical. So would you mind just kind of differentiating those really quickly just for people who are, are listening to this podcast who may not have listened to the others? For sure. So a biomedical model is, is probably what um, practitioners like, like you and I were trained in. So that idea that we're, we're looking for the tissue causing symptoms and we're looking at within a sort of a, a physiological model and uh, the, the bio bits basically, so the, the body components. And, and the stretch from that is really that we target our treatments towards those tissues. So um, as, as therapists, we'd be using our hands, we might be using um, manipulation or stretching or, or whatever targeting towards those tissues. In a medical sense, we might be targeting those tissues with injections or uh, medications. So, so really looking at the, uh, the bio parts. Surgery might be another um, way that we would, we would work within the biomedical model. So biopsychosocial is, is recognising that the bio is part of it. Um, and, and something that we obviously can't ignore and we need to address. Um, but that, that condition, whatever it may be, whether it's chronic pain or um, even an acute injury, it sits within uh, a psychosocial framework. So the thoughts and the understanding that a person has around their condition are really important and the environment that that sits in, so those social aspects. So what are people around them saying about this? Um, what does the culture say about that? And all those components come together to um, essentially drive this process. And if we neglect the, um, the, the psycho and the social bits of it, then we're really missing out on the, um, the bits that, that give us the really good results, particularly with chronic pain. Yeah, and I feel like you're, you're just missing out on the overall person behind 
the, like you said, chronic low back pain, it goes beyond just that diagnosis and the tissues around it, but you really have to look at what other, what other aspects of life is this person dealing with that can contribute or that can be an input into the system. And yeah, absolutely. it's important to address all of that because all of those inputs can sort of upregulate the nervous system and and uh, create that output of pain. Absolutely. And um, I know you've, you've talked about this in your podcast before, that idea um, for a practitioner to take those ideas on board and switch from a biomedical model to a more of a biopsychosocial model. You talked about the fact that for you it was a, an easy skill. It made a lot of sense and you took it on board and, and, uh, and sort of changed your approach to it. But for, for other people it can be really quite difficult and particularly when it doesn't fit with their truth or their understanding of, of um, where they sit within the healthcare um, field and, and what they what they do and how well their approaches work. So I think the obvious way to go about it is, is to hit it at an undergraduate level where we're not having to, to switch people from that biomedical to a biopsychosocial approach when they're getting out into practice and realising, hang on, um, sometimes these approaches aren't working particularly well and, and, and particularly for those chronic patients, chronic pain patients. So if we, if we look at an, at an undergraduate level, um, that's the obvious place that we want to, uh, to put our attentions towards. Um, and I know David Butler spoke at, at uh, Pan Adelaide, so there's a conference in, in late March, and he spoke really passionate about, passionately about this idea that um, I think he's, he's talked called if we're so good then why are things so bad and he was talking about the idea that you know yes there is most definitely momentum and there's movement and uh and this field is is gaining um gaining strength and people are, are getting on board but when he looked at it across the the undergraduate profession uh training um he was looking at the physiotherapy schools in australia and only two had standalone pain subjects and then obviously everything else beyond that, there's a spectrum. So there's going to be courses that will have integrated pain science that will, will be across the, the course. And then right down on the lower end of the spectrum where there's, there's little or no reference to it at all and still that real tissue focused approach. So, I mean, that's a bit of a no brainer, but that's, that's where we start is, uh, is at the undergraduate level. And, you know, I, I feel like here in the US at least, there's so many roadblocks and hurdles that one needs to get over in order to even get to that undergraduate level. Because, you know, for, in order to pass your national boards, there are, I don't think there are very many questions about pain science. And so, no. you know, so it's no, like that, that, that standardized test that one has to take in order to pass to become a therapist, if it doesn't address it, then a lot of the schools and a lot of the students aren't going to study it. No, that's right, because they don't see the need. And, right, um, and right. I, I think one of the other the hurdles that we see, and, and um, you'll have to give me input from your side of things from, from the States, but I know uh, one of the big hurdles that I see in, in getting professionals to get on board with this is what I call is the busy practice selection bias. So. Um, the, the practitioner might be really, really busy and they're seeing uh, lots of patients, they might have a waiting list. Um, and 
what, what tends to happen if they're using these sort of more passive approaches and, um, and biomedical approaches where the patient sort of comes in the door and the emphasis is on the practitioner doing, it, doing the work for them. So um, they're sort of handing over their health to the practitioner and the emphasis is on them making them better. Um, and that, that's obviously a, a, an older and more traditional model and, and one that might have been um, relied on in the past, but it's one we're trying to move away from. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the busy practitioner, it becomes a bit of a, a reinforcing model. So um, the patients where that doesn't fit or for the chronic pain patients where we know that manual therapy alone is not going to necessarily be the answer, they might need to quietly fall off the books and, and uh, they might cancel their, their appointment and, um, and because the practitioner is busy and they financially don't need to chase up that patient um, or they don't have a real reason to go looking for what the problems are because it's obviously um, not as comfortable as hearing all your success stories, um, the, the patients that are often left are the ones that do well. And, uh, and that, that reinforces to that practitioner that this model works really well. And, um, and I think we know that the vast majority of our patients will, with good reassurance and a bit of um, uh, good management and regression to the mean will, will tend to do really well. And, uh, but but when, we're not, when we neglect to keep an eye on the ones that are falling off and, uh, and falling out of our system, then we're not really getting that true representation of, of our, our whole practice. And so I don't think they then see the need to um, to look outside the box and, and to see what other people are talking about. And particularly if um, if people who are trying to uh, to spread this message that, that um, pain education and, and neuroscience uh, education is the way forward, um, we have to be really careful with our message. And I know Jason Silvernail talks about this as well because the potential for us to actually create disengagement is, is really there. And, uh, and particularly if we're talking about the idea that manual therapy doesn't work for, for chronic pain, and, and uh, we know that it does, uh, it, it can be a really good tool as part of our chronic pain uh, management approaches, but on its own, it is, it's less likely to, uh, to be the answer that most people are looking for for chronic pain. But if these practitioners are hearing this message and it doesn't fit with their understanding of, of their practice, then it, it can potentially be very disengaging for them because they can just think, um, she doesn't know what she's talking about, what I do works, and I don't need to engage with this stuff at all. So essentially they're, they're throwing the baby out with the bathwater, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it makes perfect sense. And then you get from, from those practitioners Well, let's back it up a second. I love the busy practice selection bias. I think that's so important. And so what can we do as practitioners to lessen that bias? Would it be to, hey, listen, I have a really busy practice, but, you know, this person with chronic low back pain keeps canceling and now they're not coming back. Is... So as practitioners, we need to follow up with those people. We need to ask them what happened. Why are you not you know, coming into therapy, what can we do to better fit with, with your needs? You know, Absolutely. Yeah. So I think that's one is to not just say, oh, well, you know, so-and-so left, I don't have time. I'm seeing 60 people a week. It's not the end of the world. And, you know, and I think you're right that those people who continue to come who to continue to see you and get better may fall into that more 
tissue is the issue, you know, so that like Louis Print and Dora said, when, when you have these patients, you kind of have to, to do your evaluation and say, okay, is this a tissue problem or is this a pain problem? And then yeah. sort of formulate your treatment plan based on that. And if it's someone who has had pain for a year, they probably have a pain problem. And so your approach is going to be different. You're not going to manipulate that person, perhaps, perhaps, you know, so you have to have a different treatment approach. And I think when you're in a very busy clinic, like you said, that maybe that's a little difficult. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, you're talking about the idea of using manipulation. We don't want, um, and, and Louis said exactly the same thing, uh, manual therapists are good at manual therapy and we don't want them to stop using those manual therapy approaches. Of course. What we want to do is just shift the focus so and, and shift the tone of that consult so that where we do use the manual therapy, where we do use the manipulation, it's with the intent of um, improving, uh, you know, putting some input into that nervous system, perhaps temporarily reducing the pain so mm -hmm. that someone might feel more comfortable engaging in the exercises that you're prescribing them so that you, um, you're really taking that, that um, turning it into an, an active consult rather than a, than a passive consult. So, yes, I do. I think um, that, that careful clinical appraisal needs to be part of everyone's practice, but um, unfortunately it's not. And a good deal of practitioners come out and they, they really do believe they can fix everything with their hands. And, um, and yeah, I think it can feed into that, that bias a little bit. Um, yeah. That's really yeah. core. And, and when you talk, like you said, when you engage with those very sort of strictly biomedical practitioners who you said think that they can fix everything with their hands, I think it is very easy for them to disengage with you with the message of pain science and, and the importance of neuroscience. So what are some ways that, or maybe some language that can be used with those people who have those very hard set beliefs? It's almost like when you talk to a patient who has very hard set beliefs, but now we're sort of shifting from the patient to the practitioner. So if you have a colleague who is, is very much the, operator not the interactor how do you gently slip in that hey maybe this pain science thing can have some merit in your practice uh, and i'm learning as i go to structure that message a little bit more carefully um yeah, but um and, and Jason Silvernail talks about the idea of you, you want these practitioners to be coming towards you a little bit. So you want them to be sort of showing an interest um, before you bombard them with information. Um, how do you go about it? We uh, have sort of case conferences where you, you can present your, your cases that haven't gone quite as well. And, uh, and talk collaboratively about different ways that, that uh, you might be able to integrate pain science into, into your approach with those, those patients. Um, but it is, it is a gently, gently um, for, for practitioners who are quite tissue focused. Yeah, and it's, I think that uh, you're right. The, the key word there is gently. Gently push it in. Gently explain to them how this might help their patient population. Um, 
So now let's, so we sort of talked about some of those hurdles and roadblocks. Are there any other hurdles or roadblocks that you have come across when uh, engaging with other practitioners? Uh, I, I think another roadblock that you might find or, or a hurdle might be the practitioner who gets really excited by the science and perhaps reads a little bit about it and um, and has a go at maybe doing some pain education with a patient and they get met with the folded arms and the furrowed brow and uh, and get a little bit flustered and get mm. off track and um, and and give up and I think that can as, a, as an experience that can certainly rock your confidence and you might be tempted to drop the whole lot in the bin and, uh, and, and leave it where it is. I think um, to combat that, one of the ways that we can go about that is to make sure that practitioners who are starting out doing this, first of all, um, have, a, have a good understanding. So for me, when I started um, reading more about pain science and, and particularly when I started my master's, I felt like I had to really sit with the material for a long time and, and really have an understanding of what it was and, and make it fit with my stories and my patients' stories so that I, I knew the science really well. And I think that's obviously the first step. So we need to make sure that the resources are there for practitioners to, um, to be able to explore that. And we'll talk perhaps later a little bit about that, where they can start. Um, but then I think what you need is, is quite a high level of, of structure and props and tools and resources so that when you go into it, and perhaps you might not go with that patient with the folded arms and the furrowed brow. I think um, Laura Mosley calls them the, uh, the FU patient <laughs> who just doesn't want to know about this, uh, this talk about pain. The, yes, 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 can you stop talking and now can you just put your thumbs in my back and fix my back pain? Right. You perhaps might uh, might leave that patient for a couple of sessions before you've got a, a slightly better rapport and you might like to drip feed your information for a little bit. But um, if you're going to have a go at the, the pain education, I think having those resources at your, at your fingertips and perhaps a bit of a checklist or um, uh, some nice diagrams that you might like to refer to. So giving it a level of structure and... Um, uh, and tools can really help so that when you hit those hit those hurdles or you lose your confidence you've, you've got something to go back to and you can feel a little bit confident going forward so things like um, you might have a copy of explain pain that you use as a, a joint reference to go through with a, a patient so explain pain um, on you've talked about it before is um, obviously the the Bible out there for both practitioners and, and patients um, mm -hmm. And I know I certainly started out with photocopies of some of the diagrams. So I love their, um, their mountain diagram that, that is very helpful for explaining about pacing and flare-ups. Yeah, that's, that, that's great. That's a, I use that all the time. If I don't have it on me, I draw it because it's, yeah. it's easy to draw a mountain and put, put the lines as to sort of the buffer zone and, and the yeah. tissue damage. And people, that really resonates well with patients. And even with those patients, the FU patients, they get it. They may not admit they get it, but they get that. That's right. And if you can have, if I have lots of photocopies of them and I can scribble all over them and, and send them home with the patient. And I do, I, I agree. I think if they're not taking it on board at that time, then it, it might resonate with them a few months down the track. And, um, and sometimes for those FU patients or the patients who aren't, aren't getting it, they, 
they might not be ready to hear the message and they often need to do one more round of the merry-go-round. Um, so keep looking for that biomedical answer. Go looking for the, the practitioner, the modality, the, the medication, the, the thing that they've just missed all this time um, and, and fail in before they come back and realise that actually you didn't know what you were talking about and, um, and perhaps go forward using a, a biopsychosocial approach. Yeah. And, you know, I think we've sort of already touched upon this, you know, how you said using multimedia to explain pain to your patients. And my next question was really how to translate the science into clinical applications. And, and how does this work, let's say, for private practice or even for, you know, I think where I think this can really come in handy as well, forget about the private practice. What about your, your acute care inpatient hospitals? you know, where the, the patient has just come out of surgery. That's where I think you want to hit them. I think you want to hit them before they even go into surgery with all of this. Absolutely. Stuff. Because sometimes by yeah. the time they get to private practice, they, you know, I feel like it's, it, acute care is such a missed opportunity for a lot of this work. I don't know if, it, what it's like in Australia, but I feel like here... Uh, acute care can be so, so vital uh, as, as that line of first defense to really get the patient and the patient's family on board with a lot of these concepts. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more, Karen. I think um, often people, when I start talking about chronic my my peers, they'll often say, oh, I've got this, this, this chronic patient. And they tend to split them into acute and chronic as if there's that, that three-month defining line where they go in the chronic basket or and prior to that they're being managed acutely. And really it doesn't work like that. You, if you've got the patient who's coming in who's acute, who's got those really poor understanding of the condition and, and the catastrophizing thoughts, putting your efforts in there um, is going to have... Uh, far greater outcomes and much easier outcomes as well um, than, than trying to that really long slog with the, the heart sink chronic pain patients who are at the other end who have had you know 10 years of pain and multiple failed treatments I think um, I couldn't agree more that that's that is where the bang for your buck is going to be is, is managing that acute stuff really really well yeah absolutely so, as to talk about how you might integrate this stuff clinically and um, so I'm an osteopath and in Australia osteopaths are manual therapists we don't go to medical school um, which we study for five years at university and it's usually a bachelor and a master's course and we're uh, nationally registered health health um, professionals so uh, we work in in private practice settings so that's my I guess my area and that's my understanding so um, how, how I've taken to clinically apply it is, um, is mainly with, with a really solid underpinning platform of pain education. So, um, so practically our, our patients come in and, and we have set it up as a, a chronic pain management program. So essentially their, their expectations are a little bit set before they come in the door. So they know they're not coming in um, solely for that passive care. They usually have had a little bit of a read on our website about what's involved in the program. But they'll come in um, and they come in for usually an hour for that first consult and we'll have a really good listen to their history, um, really make sure we listen to their story and, and all the failed treatments that they've had, get a really good understanding of where they're at 
get a really good understanding of what they're wanting out of treatment and what their goals are and, and how that fits with their values so that we can tailor our approach uh, towards those so that everything makes sense to them. Um, we'll usually do a physical examination in that first treatment and then, um, and then set a bit of a rough plan and explain why, why our plan looks like it does. So um, the, the following weeks then we'll do uh, a longer consult, so another one hour consult where they'll come in and it's just for pain education. So they, they usually don't tend to get hands on treatment in that session. Um, so again, their expectations are set, so they're not going to be upset. Um, and they know that they're coming in just to, to do that education. So we'll, we'll do all of the bits of pain education. We'll talk about the neurophysiology and the changes that occur from acute to chronic. We'll, we'll talk about the fact that the tissues have, have usually healed and that they are less of an influence and that the pain doesn't represent tissue damage. That's obviously usually our, our main goal is to separate out pain from tissue damage. Um, we'll talk about flare-ups and what they mean and, and what they perhaps don't mean. We'll talk about pacing, uh, where exercise fits in. We'll talk about thought-based approaches and, um, and perhaps mention things like cognitive behavioural therapy and mindfulness meditation. Um, and, and basically what we try and do is we use that, that pain education to underpin our approaches. So, and particularly for the, the things that are harder sells for the patient. So exercise is not always an easy sell for a couple of reasons. Um, firstly, if there's fear avoidance, then we need to uh, sort of myth bust those ideas and reassure the patient that their tissues are safe. Um, and that can help them engage with exercise. And also, we might even like to talk about the idea that the exercise can reverse some of the changes that we see in, in both peripheral and central sensitisation, and that can feed into the motivation because, um, because exercise, as you know, can sometimes be, um, be quite a difficult one to get people on board with and, and to stick with. Yeah, and, you know, from, from what I'm hearing, which I think is so important and, and maybe sometimes I forget about this as well, is it sounds like you guys do a great job at setting the expectations early, which is so important when I think you have these, these patients who have been bopping around to a lot of different practitioners so that they know, like you said, when they know when they're coming in, they kind of know what to expect if they've gotten uh, a read through your website. So setting those, the patient expectations early listening to the story of the patients, making sure you're, that the patient's goals and values are integrated with your treatment and that your treatment is tailored to those goals and values, which is super important. And again, sometimes uh, practitioners kind of go on their own plan without really taking into consideration the goals and values of the patients. And then I think also most importantly, like you said, is explaining your plan to the patient. So, so what, what this plan is going to entail, and, and again, it goes with your, your theme that you did right off the bat is setting, the, setting up the expectations. So yeah, that's, I, right. that's a great way to integrate that biopsychosocial model without the patient getting confused or, or upset. Yeah, and, and as you say, the, the setting those expectations is really important and, and probably the, the number one thing about that is to set that, that idea of active and not passive so that mm -hmm. the, 
you're really trying to empower the patient so that they don't feel like they have to hand their health over to someone else or wait for someone else to take the pain away or something else to take the pain away. That you're trying to put them back in the driver's seat and give that give them that internal locus of control. So that that sort of sets the the scene. The other main goal that we look at in in our pain education approach is to separate out pain from function. So we've we've painted this picture of um, you know changes in in the nervous system that are perpetuating this this um, this problem, and therefore we probably don't want to keep talking about pain and looking at pain scores and what's your pain done over the last week. What we want to put our emphasis on, and we're trying to get the patient on board with this idea as well, is that we put our emphasis on the function. What what have you done this week that you couldn't do before? What how are we using um, our graded approaches to work towards your goals. So if your goal was running, we might start with, you know, little jogs and, and walking. Or um, so, so that also helps for the patient to define what is success. So if success to them is complete removal of the pain, then we, we have to probably be a bit honest and say that's not our goal. Our goal is more to look at the functional stuff and to point them in the direction of the things that are important to them and the things that they've been missing out on. And, and, uh, and that's what we define as success is when, when people start to um, functionally reintegrate into the things that they've been missing out on. Well, that sounds like success to me. So, so let's talk about some of, we mentioned in the beginning of the uh, podcast, uh, some resources so let's talk about some resources. Now, it, you know, in your bio, I had mentioned that you're taking a master's of pain management. So what are some resources that people can look at if they're interested in taking that master's of pain management? Yeah, so um, the, the master's has been a really, really fantastic program for me and a fantastic journey. It's all online and, and as I said, it's through Sydney University. So um, I've been able to structure it around having children and moving cities and, and having a very busy, busy husband at times. So you, I've been able to defer at times and, and take it at my own pace. Um, it's, it's really been a fantastic, fantastic program. I can't rave highly enough about it. Um, and there's similar programs that exist around the world. So I've, I've sent some of the resources through to you. So mm -hmm. I know Cardiff University offers um, a, a program and University of Edinburgh. Um, there's one in Canada at the University of Alberta, which I think is a certificate um, in pain management program. And I know in New Zealand, the University of Otago runs a, um, a Master of Health Sciences, I think it is, with a, a pain management emphasis. Um, so, and, and all of those courses are, are online. So I think that's a really fantastic way to, um, to sort of delve into the pain sciences at a, at a much greater, deeper level. Um, and with most of them as well, you don't actually have to do the masters. They usually have grad dip components or grad cert components mm. that are a bit shorter. And some of them even have short courses in there. So they're a really fabulous way to, um, to engage with the material without having to turn your life completely upside down. Sure. And that's if you want to go a little deeper for those people listening who are kind of still on the fence and, and maybe they're, they want to get into the pain science, but they don't want to make that big commitment of, of uh, training through a university. Um, there's Explain Pain, like you said, uh, which, is, which is great for practitioners and patients. And the other day I was at a patient's house and I noticed by her bedside table, Explain Pain. 
the book was yeah. there, so that was very exciting. But what, what other, outside of Explain Pain, what are some other uh, good resources for people who want to kind of just start getting their feet wet? Yeah, I think um, I think explain pain is always a great place to start, and as you say, you can. It is is great for patients as well. You can get it as an ebook, so it's about half the price of the actual printed book. Oh. Um, and you can also get it as a, a talking book, I think, as well. So um, that that's a really really good resource and a great place to start. Um, the other one that I tend to use in in my private practice is um, a book Manage Your Pain by Michael Nicholas and the um, and the Sydney Uni team. Um, it's a little bit cheaper, so I think it's about twenty five Australian dollars, or probably about twenty US dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, and it and it is great to hand over to patients to reinforce what you've talked about in your pain education. Um, you might like to send them home and, and get them to read a chapter and bring it back and review it. Or, um, but it it is also a great resource for practitioners as well. Um, the and pain who, I'm tool. Sorry, who was the author on that? Sorry, Michael Nicholas. Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Go ahead. Um, the Pain Toolkit is one I've just been looking into recently. Um, that's a fantastic online setup that patients, a pain online pain management, um, I guess, approach that that patients can use as a resource. Um, and again, that's in the in the information that you'll find mm-hmm. that you'll be able to pop up on Facebook. Um, a, a really nice website that I like. It's it's from the UK. It's called Sheffield Back Pain, and it's got um, a whole stack of resources for both practitioners. And, and clinical resources that you can print off and, and hand over to patients. So really nice ones, sort of easy language ones for, for low back pain or neck pain, um, sort of reassurance and, and all those things that fit within our um, acute pain guidelines for low back pain and neck pain. That's a really lovely one. Um, the Protectometer, which is the mm-hmm. new workbook by Lauren Mosley and David Butler, which I know you've um, you've at least had one copy of that. I know uh, you were talking about that. Um, it's, that's really fantastic. I've been working through that with a couple of patients, and it's wonderful because you can actually sit together and use it as a as a quite structured activity, and then mm-hmm. send people home with it with as homework. Um, the thing that I love about it is the Dims and Sims concept that they've yep. they've that idea of danger in me versus safety in me and the idea that you reduce the dims and increase the sims and that that's going to have an effect on your pain levels which is quite a it's it's sometimes a bit of an esoteric concept and a bit Mm -hmm. of a hard sell to patients and I love how this gives it a a level of structure and uh, and a bit of tangibility and I I think I I just love that that you can um, you can work through that with patients yeah I agree and they make it so easy for the patient to, for the patient and the therapist to understand and to work through. And so if you get the protectometer, the book, it's, you know, they've even got color coded stickies. Yes. I mean, yes, it's really, that's right. they really, you know, put a lot of effort into making it very user friendly. So yeah, I think that's a great resource. Yeah, absolutely. And then, um, you know, there, there's obviously everything in between. I, I love the Soma Simple website. There's lots of resources on there. Uh-huh. And um, and then the various blogs that, that go and, and integrate all this stuff into people's clinical practice. There's, there's plenty of them out there. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And then there's, and there's a lot popping up more here in the U.S. You, you mentioned earlier that... Uh, I guess it's Noy and David Butler and Laura Mosley have a, the Pain Adelaide Conference in Adelaide, Australia. There's the San Diego Pain Summit, which had its first 
conference this year. And, and like I said, you'll be speaking at it in 2016. That's in February. There's uh, ISPI, International Spine and Pain Institute. They have a conference each year. They had a great one last year on pain. It was their third one. They have one coming up at the end of June, which every, every joint has a brain that, uh, again, centers on uh, the pain neuroscience and the biopsychosocial model and experience. So there's a lot out there. I think if, if you're interested and you want to get your feet wet, get explained pain, um, I think that's a really great way to, if you're on the fence, let's say, and you're not quite sure you want to let go of that biomedical model quite yet. Um, and, and these are ways, you know, we mentioned in the beginning of the podcast that roadblocks and hurdles. So maybe these are, are very easy and practical ways that, that fellow practitioners can get over those roadblocks. Yeah, that's right. And it, it doesn't have, you don't have to have a, a complete, uh, shift in um in one day you can you can start to integrate this material slowly um absolutely and, uh, yeah as you get your head around it absolutely well this was great Allison. i thank you so much and again if people want to get in touch with you and they want to see your writing they can go to www.beyondmechanicalpain.com um, and, and they can see you, like we said, uh, register for the San Diego Pain Summit, and you can see Allison live in February in San Diego. Um, and Allison, any, uh, any other uh, ways people can get in touch with you? Are you on uh, Twitter? Are you on Facebook? I am both. So uh, I'm beyond M for Mary Pain is my uh, Twitter handle and um, Beyond Mechanical Pain on Facebook as well. Great. Well, thank you so much for, for coming on. And I think this is really practical. I think it gives people um, some great ideas to start kind of gently shifting their, their focus and their, their patient treatment focus. So thank you so much for coming on all the way from Australia. Thanks, Karen. And everyone, thanks for listening. Have a great week and stay healthy, wealthy, and smart.